Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's what you'll need to know. Facebook fight back. Zuckerberg complains of a coordinated effort to undermine the company. Tesla's trillion, the car maker's electrifying stock market valuation. And a princess bride, no more. Japan's Mako Kimura marries a commoner and loses her title. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move this Tuesday with Facebook under fire once again from the media, but not from investors. And that remains critical. The social media giant making profits of more than $9 billion last quarter each month more than ever. More people than ever are using Facebook products. We are talking 3.6 billion of us, even as accusations mount that it facilitates human trafficking, drug cartels, interference in elections and democracy, and fuels divisions in society. And yet take a look at this. Facebook's stock price, higher after the latest leaks. For all the bad press, it's up around half a percent pre-market following earnings reported after Monday's closing bell, and it's still up 20% year-to-date. What Facebook numbers prove is for all the criticism, the business model remains rock solid, as we often discuss on this show. And it means that the only way the tech giant changes its behavior is if regulators force it to do so. We'll discuss with early Facebook investor and former advisor to Mark Zuckerberg, Roger McNamee, who's long been calling for regulation to tackle issues like safety, like privacy, and like competition. Now, from Facebook woes to investment flows, the Dow and the S&P 500 set for fresh records on strong earnings and stable oil prices and bond yields. In Europe, the German DAX sitting at fresh six-week highs. And in Asia, nice gains in Japan, though some give back from uh, Monday's gains over in China. Stocks pressured on news that property developer Modern Land may become the new Evergrande after it missed an international bond payment. There are reports that Beijing is also set to roll out a pilot real estate tax for the entire nation too. Hmm, timing, as they say, is everything. And no time like the present to talk about Facebook. The social media giant providing a timely reminder that it continues to rake in money even as firestorms range over how it operates. Revenues surged to $29 billion last quarter. Profits were up 17%. And user numbers as I've mentioned, grew 12% to 3.6 billion people. That's around half the global population. Just to give you some context here, CEO Mark Zuckerberg pushed back against the Facebook papers on the earnings call. Just take a listen to what he had to say. Uh, Good faith criticism helps us get better. But my view is that what we are seeing is a coordinated effort to selectively use leaked documents to paint a false picture of our company. The reality is that we have an open culture where we encourage discussion and research about our work so we can make progress on many complex issues that are not specific to just us. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, great to have you with us. Just to be clear, they're refuting much of the evidence of their own work and and research. (laughs) But, you know, I had a sort of think last night for a long time about 
what he said on that call. And I thought, you know, maybe that would be okay if they were a startup. And he's talking like they're still a micro startup and not a company that on a monthly basis has 3.6 billion people using their product. It's it's sort of worse than pushback and uh, offense as a defense. It's it's almost like denial. And I think that's exactly actually what Frances Haugen said yesterday. She mentioned the sort of startup culture of Facebook and how hard it was actually to raise issues up the ranks. Um, clearly, Mark Zuckerberg has refuted that they're putting profits before safety here. He also says there's a balance to strike between reducing harmful content and keeping up values like uh, freedom of expression. Now, he says that their AI is now picking up on 90 percent of harmful content as opposed to humans. But that slightly ignores the big issue here. How much content are they really picking up overall? There are big issues in question here as to how they are picking it up, particularly when we look at different languages. I know you'll be getting into that uh, later in the show. Um, Zuckerberg once again recognizes that regulation is needed, but again he says that is not Facebook's responsibility. He wants governments and regulators to take a much more active role. That is nothing new. He says fa- Facebook is on track to spend more than $5 billion on safety and security this year. But having just turned a profit of over $9 billion just for one quarter, I'm sure people would like to see uh, maybe that increase a little bit. Julia? Yeah, I mean, you raised some great points there. And actually, on the earnings call, it was the AI question. I think it was from Evercore ISI that that came up. And he said, look, um, some of the categories like hate speech have been harder because we're operating in around 150 languages around the world. And there's cultural nuance. I mean, take a look at India, 340 million users. 25, I believe, official languages, and they've got moderation in five, I think, according to the the Facebook Papers League. I mean, that's a a real hotbed and a challenge here. And then I hear them talking about investing $10 billion (laughs) in augmented reality and virtual reality. Um, How about you spend some of that $10 billion in some of the areas where you know you're challenged? Right. Because put that into context, that's pretty much double what they're spending on safety and security, which is at the root of this massive media storm. And what Frances Haugen is saying to the U.S. Congress, the U.K. Parliament, she's going to be speaking to the EU Parliament next month. Um, Their vision for the metaverse was front and center of the earnings. They're breaking out uh, their hardware division, Facebook Reality Labs, that makes Oculus into a separate segment altogether. Um, And they are employing 10,000 engineers to work on the metaverse in Europe. We found that out last week. Frances Haugen said yesterday when she heard the news about that, she said, well, what could we have done with 10,000 engineers if they had been put to work on safety and security? It's been a rough few weeks. Facebook share price has, you know, tracked down a little bit in recent weeks since the beginning of September. It was up again, though, on these earnings. Little surprise when you look at them. Uh, Profits up 17% for the third quarter compared to last year. Uh, And I think this just goes to say that investors see a company growing at a fair clip. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. The reason why they're not spending the $10 billion is because um, they're profit maximizers, quite frankly, and none of these issues are going to be tackled until they're forced to. And actually, to Facebook's credit, they've said that. Give us the rules and we'll abide by them. But right now, it's all a gray area. Regulators have to act. Anna Stewart, great job. Thank you. There was a lot of stuff in that. All right. Meanwhile, Facebook also has language blind spots and we've kind of discussed it. Whistleblower Francis Haugen says the company knew it was being used to incite violence in non-English speaking countries like Ethiopia, but failed to stop the spread of harmful content. A core part of why I came forward was I looked at the consequences of choices Facebook was making and I looked at things like the global south. 
And I believe situations like Ethiopia are just part of the opening chapters of a novel that is going to be horrific to read. Larry Madawa joins us once again. Larry, always great to have you on the show. She actually said they allow the temperature to get hotter and hotter and hotter in some of these countries before they then go, okay, we perhaps have to rein this back a little bit. And in countries like Ethiopia, um, devastating consequences, perhaps. Absolutely, Julia, because the way Facebook works is if you have a post that's getting a lot of comments and likes and shares, then it's shown to more people. That engagement-based ranking is dangerous in situations where you have a conflict. Ethiopia has been at war in the north of the country since November last year. And what these documents, internal documents seen by CNN indicate is that even though Facebook ranks Ethiopia among the countries at the highest risk of conflict, its moderation efforts just fell far short of the inflammatory content that's available on Facebook. But even worse, another document, for instance, says that Facebook did not build automated tools to detect hate speech and misinformation. So what essentially it allowed is for politicians, armed groups, other bad faith actors to exploit the platform, to incite ethnic violence, and to essentially call for people to take arms against people who are, they're opposed to, ethnic minorities and the like. And that is the danger here, that Facebook, which is in major languages spoken in Ethiopia, such as Afano Romo and Amharic, that they didn't have enough people looking at that content and flagging it and taking it down if it was problematic. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge part of it, is the, the challenge, particularly where you've got cultural language issues that they have to uh, tackle. Larry, just to be clear, and obviously Facebook right. aren't here to defend themselves specifically, what are Facebook saying about this specific issue? And how many people in Ethiopia actually use Facebook? So Facebook has told CNN that they have invested in Ethiopia, that they have added capacity and invested in people who speak the local languages, not just Afano Romo and Amharic that I mentioned, but also Somali and Tigrinya, which is spoken in the Tigray region, which has been, has been at war. Officially, Facebook does not say how many people actually use uh, the network anywhere outside of the U.S., so we can only go by a guesstimate. But Facebook is an extremely popular social media platform, not just in Ethiopia, but across the continent, so many people use it. Facebook also will not tell us how many actual people it has speaking Amharic or Afano Romo or even some of the more popular languages in this part of the world like Swahili, which has more than 200 million speakers. So while they say they're committing more resources, we don't know how much more. Yeah, more context required. Laya Madero, great to have you. Thank you. An electrifying market cap, Tesla joining the $1 trillion club, the first car maker to do so. That's after its stock surged more than 12% on Monday. Paula Monica joins us now. Paul, great to have you with us. Two drivers of this, an analyst upgrade and a deal with Hertz. Talk us through it. Yeah, Morgan Stanley's uh, Adam Jonas is widely considered to be one of the most influential auto analyst on Wall Street. So he raised his price target yesterday on Tesla. That clearly helped ignite this rally. But I think you're right, Julia, the Hertz deal might be what is even more exciting to Tesla investors. Hertz, you know, putting in an order for 100,000 electric vehicles from Tesla. And I think that people look at that news as validation for Tesla that the company and its vehicles, the Model S3, Y and X are really going mainstream. This is no longer just for the wealthy on the coasts that are buying these uh, electric vehicles, which are, you know, admittedly still a bit pricey, uh, you know, maybe out of reach for some average consumers. But 
I think that as costs come down, that's going to be less of an issue going forward. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? This valuation now is a greater market cap than 11 of the largest global automakers combined. And we've long had this debate whether it's valued as a tech company versus a car maker company, or at least should. And I think actually that's clear. But actually, some of the best ways of looking at this, I think, is that they sold 500,000 cars worldwide last year. So that's based on their market cap currently equivalent to roughly $2 million per vehicle sold. And perhaps that's out of date. Fine. So they're aiming to sell close to a million uh, million cars this year. So that would equate to a valuation of more than $1 million um, per car sold. But what's actually interesting to me is the sort of questions about the meaniness, perhaps the froth and the interest that's in this, even will be clear with the Morgan Stanley valuation, um, $5 billion worth of call options sold, according to Forbes, uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, the crypto connection here with the Bitcoin on the balance sheet. And we've seen the share price of Tesla and the Bitcoin price actually track quite closely. Can we perhaps tie some of this to froth and excitement in other products with what we're seeing? Yeah, I think it is apparent, Julia, that there is some froth and perhaps a lot of froth in Tesla's stock for some of the reasons you mentioned that don't necessarily have anything to do with the core auto business. Also, you know, going back to the core auto business, there are other ways to look at the stock and how it is perhaps more crazily valued than the rest of the industry because, you know, Toyota, which is second globally in market cap, there are a couple of charts I know that you have that show that Toyota's vehicle sales, overall revenue and profits dwarf Tesla. But this is about momentum. It's about expectations for the future. And let's be honest, it's about Elon Musk. Everyone knows who Elon Musk is. You're going to be hard pressed to find people outside of the auto industry, hardcore car junkies, and maybe Wall Street traders that know who the CEOs of GM and Ford and Stellantis, the company that you know is now Chrysler essentially, are. I mean, we know who Mary Barra and uh, you know Jim Farley are because you know it's our job to do so. But everyone knows who Elon Musk is in the same way that everyone knows who Jeff Bezos and Tim Cook are. And I think there is a certain element of a cult of personality that is driving this stock higher and higher. Yeah, I mean, the bears would say as well, to, to your point, it is about future earnings potential. But you wait till the, the competition of some of the other car makers comes in with their electric vehicle offerings. The problem is it's so expensive to be wrong uh, in this stock that they've long since thrown in the towel. Um, hmm. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Sudan's army chief and coup leader says the country's prime minister is safe and he's blaming the civilian government for a political deadlock that he claims was pushing the country towards civil war. On Monday, the military dissolved the country's power-sharing transitional government and arrested civilian leaders. In Brazil, lawmakers could vote today to push a report to the Attorney General which condemns President Jair Bolsonaro's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and other charges. Mr Bolsonaro denies wrongdoing. Meanwhile, on Monday, YouTube joined Facebook and Instagram in removing a video Mr Bolsonaro posted last week in which he linked the coronavirus to AIDS. 
with none of the fanfare usually seen in a royal wedding. Japan's Princess Mako married her longtime fiancé a short time ago and instantly lost her royal title. The marriage between a commoner and a royal has been very controversial in Japan and the couple plans to move to America. Still to come here on First Move, AstraZeneca's antibody cocktail, the company's American head on what could be a breakthrough drug to prevent and treat COVID-19. And AI keeps on trucking. Self-driving startup Embark says its tech could be at the wheel by 2024. We've got the company's CEO and we'll talk about IPO plans too. Stay with us. It's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move, a terrific Tuesday on tap for the U.S. majors with the Dow and the S&P set to rise further into record territory. The Nasdaq now less than 2% away from records with earnings on tap later today from Microsoft, Alphabet and Twitter. GE and UPS, the latest U.S. firms to up their 2021 outlook. And in Europe, another banking blowout. This time it's UBS giving the best performance on a quarterly basis in six years. Having Wall Street sentiment too, rising hopes that corporate tax hikes won't be included in the Capitol Hill stimulus bills as Congress tries to hammer out an agreement by the weekend. Business also hoping the White House will delay vaccine mandates until after the holidays to avoid end-of-year staffing chaos too. And in the United States, AstraZeneca is ready to roll out a new weapon to both treat and protect prevent COVID-19, which could become a lifeline for people unwilling or unable to use vaccines. In trials, the company says its antibody cocktail called AZD7442 cuts the risk of severe disease or death by 50% when given to patients within a week of first COVID symptoms. It says protection lasts for more than six months and it could protect people without a strong enough immune system to benefit from a vaccine. The treatment, which consists of two injections, is awaiting emergency use authorization by US regulator, the FDA. Dober is executive vice president and president of biopharmaceuticals at AstraZeneca, and he joins us now. So fantastic to have you on the show. What caught my attention there was potentially the use for this in prevention, but also treatment. Talk us through what your late stage trials have uh, shown. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And first of all, yes, we are excited about the potential of this long-acting antibody for two reasons. First of all, we all know that vaccines are highly effective, but unfortunately, there's still a, a very large population of, of patients who are unable to, mine, to, to mount a sufficient immune response. And, and you, need, you need to think about patients who, has, who have cancer, who are immunocompromised, uh, and those patients are at high risk in order to develop severe COVID. So we have done two very important trials. First of all, the trial in what is called the prevention trial. We were able to show that patients who are immunocompromised and other patients who are at high risk are, are delivering an, a, a response of more than 70% in, in those patients. So they, they are prevented in order to, uh, to get a severe COVID. So that's an enormous uh, uh, advantage uh, for, for those patients. You need to realize that in many countries, up to 2% of the po- population is immunocompromised. Um, and once again, those patients are cancer patients, uh, blood cancer patients, uh, but also patients with multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis. So that's one, one very uh, important part. It's long acting, and that means that uh, we have now data for up to six months, but we truly believe 
that we will show data up to one year. So one shot of this long-acting antibody wow. will be able to prevent that. Um, and then your second question about the treatments. Equally, in the treatment uh, study, we have shown that patients who are at high risk of progressing to, the, to severe disease, uh, because they are comorbid, they have cancer, diabetes, obesity, uh, are, are getting protected with 50%. And if you do it in the first five days after the, the first symptoms, you are able to see that the efficacy is increasing to 67%. So overall, I think a very exciting data set in order to help so many patients around the world who are not able to mount an uh, effective immune response uh, by vaccines. And it's tough when we're talking about using it as a preventative for COVID-19 to compare with other vaccines on the market, including your own vaccine. But just in terms of where you've challenged and how you've challenged this antibody treatment, you have been challenging it in an environment where Delta, the Delta um, variant is, is operating. So in terms of the earlier vaccines that only were looking at alpha versus this today where we're dealing with the Delta variant operating around the world, um, this is a good sign too. Absolutely. It's a, it's a very good sign. And, and on the basis of uh, uh, diversity of experiments, we, we, we have good hopes that, that our long-acting antibody uh, is, is very effective against all the variants of concern. Um, so in that sense, it's certainly effective against the Delta variant. Uh, and that will bring a lot of hope to, to the vulnerable populations around the world in order to also to make sure that they are safe uh, for, for versus COVID-19 in, uh, infection. Can you explain as simply as possible, she says with a smile, the difference in the science here? Because you have explained for those that might be immunocompromised that, that this could be an alternative option potentially if, if, if it gets the authorization. Um, but there are vaccine skeptics who are looking at the vaccines that have been developed around the world and saying, I'm afraid of the science, I'm afraid of the long term consequences. How might this be a better option for those people? Yeah, so, so first of all, we have done the study because we would like to help the, the most vulnerable people. But right. for those who are reluctant in order to get a vaccine, this, this could be an option because uh, the vaccine is based on the fact that the immune system itself will, will produce antibodies. Uh, of course, you need to be uh, relatively healthy in order to mount an immune response. Well, the antibodies almost instantly give you the protection you would like to see. Uh, so there's no need to wait for, for a booster uh, injection. Instantly, you will get uh, uh, neutralizing antibodies who will protect you from, from COVID-19. So it could be an option, of course, of, of, for all those people who are reluctant in order to, uh, uh, to, to get a vaccine. But equally, uh, I also would like to take the opportunity that overall the vaccines available are, are, are highly safe and very effective. Uh, and, and we also need to realize that there are so many vulnerable uh, patients in the world that they deserve, of course, this, uh, this potential long-acting antibody uh, as well. Yeah, you make a very good point. And I think it comes down to, unfortunately, cost too. What's the relative cost of this antibody cocktail versus we can use your vaccine as a comparison, um, your vaccine? Yeah, first of all, we have a very clear ambition to make uh, our long-acting antibody available to as many as people as, right. as needed. Uh, but it's also fair to say that you cannot compare a, a vaccine versus, an, uh, in this case, the long-acting antibody. The number of doses we can produce of the long-acting antibody 
uh, are, are, are tiny compared to the enormous number of vaccines we are producing on a daily basis. How just tiny? as AstraZeneca. Uh, it's, let's say you are talking about millions versus billions or hundreds yeah. of millions uh, with the vaccine. Uh, so we need to realize that, uh, that there is a, a substantial difference in the number of doses we can produce regarding the long-acting antibody. But once again, uh, for, for those people who are vulnerable in order to uh, get infected and uh, uh, who wants to return to a normal life, the long-acting antibody can offer a very good solution. You didn't tell me how many multiple times the cost is of this antibody cocktail versus a vaccine too. But no, that, that's I'm assuming. It's, 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 it's more expensive uh, than, the, than the vaccine. And, and how much more expensive? Can you give us any Maybe sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to disclose because we are in active discussion with governments, including right. the US government, uh, in order to, uh, uh, to, to make arrangements. And, and, uh, but be assured that we will make sure that uh, everyone who needs a long-acting antibody, uh, that we will make that available uh, to them. And talk to me about potential orders then. You mentioned um, you're obviously in negotiations with the government. Can you give us a sense of, of what you've seen already, assuming, again, you get authorization on this? Yes, let's start with the United States. The right. U.S. government has already, already ordered uh, 700,000 doses upon the EUA. Um, we are in the process of uh, hopefully getting the EUA uh, in the next uh, few, uh, few weeks. There are rolling reviews uh, underway elsewhere across the globe. Uh, and we are in active discussion with multiple governments in order to secure orders. But it's too early in order to speculate about the size of those orders. You mentioned safety as well, and you also mentioned safety on the vaccines too. And I, I do want to get your context because I do think this is important. The UK recently added an extremely rare uh, nerve disease to the potential side effects for the AstraZeneca vaccine. And obviously in these early stages with these vaccines, whether there is causation, correlation, no correlation at all, if there's any concerns, it will be added to a list. Can you provide data and context for this specific concern with regards to your vaccine? Because it is important, yeah. once again, to address some of the concerns and skepticism out there. Yeah, no, an excellent question. And, and, and you can be assured that for us as a company, patient safety is clearly of the utmost importance uh, for AstraZeneca, but also certainly for, for regulators. Um, and, and overall, we are, uh, uh, we are not uh, so concerned. Uh, the, the side effect you are referring to is extremely uh, rare. Uh, our vaccine has a similar safety profile to other vaccines, uh, and that has been well recognized by re regulators like the EMA, the WHO. Uh, so in that sense, of course, we will have close monitoring of, of side effects. And we, are, we continue to work with regulators around the world to closely monitor the safety of our vaccine. But all in all, uh, the, the, the safety uh, uh, aspects are, are important. We're monitoring that. Uh, but we are not highly concerned. I'm always saying the side effects of COVID-19 infection are much, much worse than the side effects what we have seen so far of, of our vaccine and other vaccines. Yes, the comparison should be made between the vaccine and COVID. Um, sir, I will thank you for your time today. I will also thank you for all the, your work and for all your team's work on producing uh, these vaccines and the antibody cocktails. And please come back and talk to us when you have news from the FDA. Rudoba there, you, Executive Vice President. Thank you, sir. And President of Biopharmaceuticals at AstraZeneca. Thank you. We'll be back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday. And as expected, fresh all-time highs for the Dow 
And for the S&P 500, amid investor hopes that profits can rise even as economic challenges like supply chain issues and inflations mount. Goldman Sachs now warning that elevated shipping costs are set to last into the middle of next year, and that could put further upward pressure on consumer prices. Tesla shares, meanwhile, moving higher again after its milestone day on Monday when it became only the sixth firm in U.S. history to reach a market cap of $1 trillion. Facebook now down around 1%. The company reporting strong overall Q3 results after Monday's closing bell, even as the firestorm of criticism over its corporate practices intensifies. Let's just take a closer look at that Facebook earnings release. Revenue, profit and user numbers continuing yearly growth in the double digits. The company underlined its bet on the metaverse from next year. It will break out the results of Facebook Reality Labs separately. Mark Zuckerberg also mentioning that the company wants to invest more in products for younger users. Joining us now is Roger Noaknami. He's co-founder of Elevation Partners. He was an early investor in Facebook and advisor to Mark Zuckerberg. He's also the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Roger, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, You and I can talk about the numbers, but we have the same conversation. So I'm going to come back to that. I vividly remember you telling me that back in 2016, you went to Sheryl Sandberg and you went to Mark Zuckerberg and you said, guys, you've got a problem and you have to get ahead of this. And I listened back to how Mark spoke on that conference call. And earlier in the show, I, I sort of referred to it as denial. What do you make of his response in the face of what we've seen in the last 24 hours? Julia, I think Mark Zuckerberg has an enormous public relations problem. He has been very successful for years at deflecting criticism by claiming a right to free speech. The problem is that the underlying business model of Facebook, where you bring three billion people onto one network with no boundaries and no safety net, then combine that with a business model that's based on essentially promoting emotionally intense content in order to promote engagement, and then add into that the ability to target people with extreme precision. And the result is that an enormous number of ideas that have lived for years at the fringes of society, things like white supremacy and anti-vax, have suddenly been thrust into the mainstream and done huge damage. And so there's really nowhere for Mark to go on this issue. He can attempt to deflect it, but I think the evidence that Francis Haugen provided is unequivocal, and it's from Facebook's own internal research. I mean, he says, Facebook says it's being taken out of context. Um, to your point, and I mentioned this at the top of the show, it's, it's half the world. In terms of monthly active users, it's now 3.6 billion people around the world that are using one of these products. And we had the outage of their products two weeks ago where it felt like for small businesses, they couldn't operate. Most of us were working out how we could call people and we had to go back to traditional forms. I mean, we've had so many examples of how powerful Facebook have become. Are we at the point now where for lawmakers, there is no choice? I would like to think that's true, Julia, because the problem is not social media. The problem is this business model and the culture of relentlessly pursuing profit at all costs. When companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon get to be the scale of a nation so that they act like governments, the conflicts with democracy are unavoidable. And we as a country are faced with a moment of truth. Either Congress and the courts are going to pursue their job, which is to basically protect consumers, or we're done, right? Because 
if you think about it, almost every major problem we have going on in this country is made worse by internet platforms like Facebook. And we have need for something that looks like a food and drug administration to ensure safety of tech products. We need to have privacy so that people are not manipulated by corporations that know absolutely everything about them. And then obviously, as you point out, we need some kind of competition regulation that makes sure that small businesses are not held captive to a single platform. You know, Facebook just announced their earnings and said, look, we're spending $5 billion on, on safety measures, but we're going to spend $10 billion uh, investing in augmented reality and that part of the business, um, which to me is quite fascinating. And actually, investors continue to reward them, one, for monetizing in very dangerous ways, as you've pointed out, with the algorithm and the way that actually eyeballs are generated, more eyeballs are generated with extreme content. Um, I, I don't really see any sort of break here in terms of changing behavior for advertisers going to Facebook in small business cases because they have to, because this is how they get access to, to consumers. Um, Facebook, as you said, a profit maximizer in continuing to do this. Um, and you like to see, you would hope that this is a point where regulators step in to change things, but, but that takes time. It could be years, Roger. No, and Julia, I think in the interim, we need the, the judicial system to do its job. One of the things that came clear from Francis Haugen's uh, releases is that Facebook has crossed some legal lines that create great right. jeopardy. For right. example, think about there was a whole Wall Street Journal article that was about human trafficking. That is a clear felony. And Facebook knowingly allowed it to take place on its platform. There's a ton of evidence from the faith, uh, from the Francis Haugen files that uh, Facebook knowingly did not do everything it could have done to prevent Stop the Steal from turning into a violent insurrection. We also know from other cases that were where redactions were removed last week that there is an antitrust case in Texas. The, the attorney general of that state is pursuing Facebook and Google for price fixing and digital advertising. And the redactions seem to suggest a tremendous awareness of those two companies that they're violating antitrust law, which is itself a violation. And that is, again, a felony at the federal level. And so I think if we see the Securities and Exchange Commission pursuing the opportunities it has relative to disclosure and insider trading, and if we see the Justice Department going after human trafficking, the uh, insurrection, and the other aspects that have come up there, like antitrust, then I believe you're going to buy time for regulators to pass legislation to do what they need to do. Also, the information that you provide to investors, surely, and how truthful you're being in terms of the impact that you're having with investors. To your point, uh, the last time we checked, human trafficking facilitating the drug trade uh, was illegal. Does that go right up to Mark Zuckerberg and, and to Sheryl Sandberg? Well, there is a case in Delaware where I believe six pension plans, including I think some state pension plans, have sued Facebook for a failure to properly disclose what was going on during Cambridge Analytica. Mm. The implication mm. of which was that the stock sales made by the executives were in fact in violation of insider trading rules. And these things are really serious and it is incumbent upon the Securities and Exchange Commission to do an investigation. And if they find that the evidence that has been revealed is correct, to actually pursue a case. And I do think that is, if you're going to have a rule of law, if you're going to have a democracy, you have to enforce the laws and you have to 
defend democracy. And that's really the choice we're all faced with today. The benefit of having huge power and huge wealth like a company like this is that you can afford to hire lobbyists. And I think anyone who spent time in Washington, D.C. or Brussels knows the power of that kind of expenditure and the voices in ears. Care to imagine, Roger, how much they're spending on lobbyists and how many people they've hired in Washington? Yeah, I mean, the answer is tens of millions of dollars for Facebook alone, but the industry, the big tech companies, are the largest spenders in Washington by a lot. And I believe that's also true in Brussels. And the one piece of advice I have for all governments outside the United States is to pursue the aspect of this that is most appropriate for you. So in Europe, privacy regulations really are paramount, I think, in the way people think about it. And the general data protection regulation has proved to be grossly inadequate. They really need to think about banning the use of any kind of intimate data in third-party transactions. So think about healthcare, location, financial, web browsing, applications use, that kind of stuff, which is so intimate and allows manipulation. You know, that's the kind of thing that any country can ban inside its borders. You don't need a coordinated response here because these companies are so dangerous that each country has its own way of looking at it. And I would encourage them all to pursue the right course for them. You know, very quickly, I as I was poring over the information in the Facebook papers this weekend, I was furiously texting using WhatsApp, calling my family back home using WhatsApp. The irony is not lost on me of the utility value to me personally while I have this conversation. How do you price those two things? It's really hard. I mean, people ask me all the time, should I get off these things? And I say, look, if you're a small business, it's really hard to get off of Facebook. If you're a rock and roll band, it's impossible to get off of Facebook. And, you know, WhatsApp is so important to people across borders. And the issue isn't the products themselves. It's the business model. It's the culture of Facebook and companies like it, which basically compromise the interests of the people who use their products constantly. And that's what we have to stand up and defend. Yeah, it's the externalities. The distinction is so important. Roger, always great to chat to you. Thank you so much, Julie. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Roger McNamee there, former advisor to Mark Zuckerberg. Thank you. After the break, another auto-related IPO is being embarked upon. Banking on an autonomous future for the truck sector propelled by a shortage of humans. Get on board. The CEO of Embark is next. Welcome back to First Move. The world needs truckers, and in the middle of a supply crunch, moves to speed up deliveries and make logistics more efficient couldn't be more timely. While these trucks are pretty unassuming, on the outside, under the hood, lies something quite radical. They're loaded with self-driving software from Embark, and with over 14,000 reservations on the books, it's in pole position to go public under a special purpose acquisition deal. And Alex Rodriguez is the CEO and joins us now. Alex, you have a lot going on. Let's start by explaining what Embark does and how the technology works. Thanks. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, everybody. Embark is a company that develops software for self-driving trucks. So we started, I, me and my co-founder Brandon started this company back in 2016, um, back when everyone was thinking about cars. And I think what Embark really does differently is bring a product that focuses on the highway driving portion. And so you have, um, you, what you can think about is you have a local driver who works, for example, in Phoenix or in Houston that does the last mile into the city center. 
And then you have a driverless truck that's able to operate on the freeway uh, and operate 24-7, moving freight uh, to do that intercity portion that's currently so hard to fill where there's uh, so much challenge on the demographics and on the lifestyle of, of really finding the truckers for that piece of the role. I mean, you've talked about greater safety and, and efficiency gains. Safety, because I'm assuming with this technology, you're hoping to in some way knock out human error. And I guess with efficiency, if you don't have a human in there, ultimately you don't have to make as many breaks, provided you've got the, the charge to keep going. Yeah, I think the uh, the efficiency gains come come from two places. The first one is uh, simply the, the ability to improve sustainability. And we think driverless trucks can have about 10% better fuel economy from how they manage that driving. And then the second piece, and this is, is really significant, is the ability to operate 24-7. So in the US today, uh, a human driver is limited to 11 hours a day. Uh, a driverless truck can obviously operate 24. And so that ability to more than double uh, the uptime of our vehicles is a really unique opportunity, especially uh, at a moment like this where, where a shortage of truckers is, is a really key problem for the whole economy. How soon do you think you can have this technology on the roads? Yeah, so we're, we're moving very quickly on this. Uh, the goal is that uh, we announced, uh, I guess, it, about a week ago now, uh, with a bunch of the largest fleets in the United States, uh, a reservation program with these partners where they're going to uh, plan to roll out 14,200 trucks uh, beginning in 2024. And so... Uh, today, we move freight. We actually have a, a small development fleet that operates in the U.S. Sunbelt, moves freight for big brand names, folks like HP uh, or AB InBev. And uh, sort of this next step that we're we're talking about now is working with some of the biggest fleets, folks like Knight Swift and Messiah Valley Transportation, uh, who are putting in those orders and, and putting that rollout in, in 2024. So you used two, two terms there, you used reservations and orders. I mean, I, I read with the 1,400, uh, sorry, 14,200 reservations, it gets you 40% of the way to your revenue targets for, um, for 2024. But I'm assuming that means that they convert into actual purchases. Is that guaranteed? Yeah, so, so these, are initially, um, these are initially just reservations. They're, they're, mm. uh, they're not guaranteed at the outset. Really, what they represent is work that we've done with these partners, um, where we've gone line by line through uh, with the management teams through the routes that they operate. And these are partners that we're running pilots with today and that we're moving freight for for them and for their customers today. And the next step for for us and for them was really to lay out how does this get rolled out? Mm. How many physical locations, how many trucks, how much stuff needs to be reserved? so that we can achieve that rollout plan. What's the cost, even per truck, of, of applying this technology? Yeah, we, we believe that the incremental hardware cost ends up right. being about $50,000 on the truck. And that's offset against, uh, there's about six to $800,000 of lifetime value by making the truck able to operate driverless. Yeah, I was about to say, and that's net of wages. I'm assuming as well, if you're trying to employ several drivers to keep the, to keep the vehicle going. Interesting. So that sort of explains the reservations. Um, can I ask how old you are, Alex? <laughs> I'm 26. How does it feel to, to soon become the youngest CEO on the NASDAQ? Because, I mean, you, you know, you started this, as you said, back in 2016. You were a relative baby and you've clearly not wasted any time. 
Do you even think about that? How does that feel? <laughs> um, I, I think obviously we're we're really excited, and, and I'm excited um, more to bring bring Embark to the market and for the opportunity that this that this represents. Uh, I think at the at on the one hand, I'm, I'm obviously pretty young. Uh, on the other hand, I've been doing robotics for 15 years, so there there really aren't many people who've been doing robotics for longer. Um, and I think it's it's uh, always one of the convenient things about working in an industry that's pretty new uh, is that you can you can be very experienced pretty early on. Yeah. Um, wow. It's all I can say. What have I been doing with my life? <laughs> I'm sure you've got a strong support team around you as well, because as you said, in a in a sort of nascent technology, you have more experience probably than most people. But leadership is something you grow into. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think yeah. um, actually Embark has one of the best investor bases of anybody um, and, and an advisor group. Uh, we have folks like Sequoia Capital, who are yeah. probably the number one investor in, in the world right now, uh, sits on our board. That The head of growth from Sequoia sits on our board. Uh, the former secretary of transportation sits on our board. Uh, and we have an advisory group that includes folks like CEOs and executives from across transportation um, that that supports us in thinking about this stuff. And so, of course, one of the things you have to do well uh, in any situation, but especially um, when when we're coming to such a brand new new industry. And of yeah. course, this will be my first time taking a company public, which I think is true for most people taking a company public, but uh, it's certainly true for me. Um, we thought it was really important to have uh, really excellent advisors. Maybe and, and just supporters. the first. Alex, great to chat to you. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Um, exciting times. Alex Rodriguez there, the CEO of Embark. Great to chat to you. You're watching First Move. More to come. And finally, on First Move, an American shapewear company that was started with $5,000 is now worth $1.2 billion. This after the private equity firm Blackstone took a stake in Spanx. The founder thanked his staff in a rather special way. Sarah Blakely gave them all first-class tickets to anywhere in the world, along with $10,000 to spend. Well, that won't put a squeeze on her new bank account, but it was a great thought, I think, for her employees. We like that kind of leadership. That's it for the show. Stay safe, connect the world with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.